So let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Jeremiah. That's where we are currently in our Through the Bible study. And this morning we come to what may be for someone here the most important thing you will ever hear. Not because I'm up here, believe me, simply because of where we are in the scripture and the principles that are going to be revealed through the text this morning. And so I ask everyone, if you would, please to just really give the Lord room to speak this truth to you today. Those who are old enough will remember a place called Mount St. Helens in Washington State, and you'll remember the year 1980. In May of 1980, the volcano in that mountain um, began erupting and uh, sent thick ash clouds about 2,000 feet into the air. And the force was so powerful of the explosion that it actually blew the face of the mountain off. And all of that went uh, sliding down in this terrifying, um, gigantic avalanche of rock and debris. And uh, so much so, and it was moving so quickly that when it was all said and done, it had covered 24 square miles of the forest area below. But for two whole months prior to May 1980, authorities had been warning everyone in the area that trouble was coming and they needed to evacuate their home. Warning after warning went out. Sheriffs and deputies drove through all the back roads, all the little areas. They warned every single person in that area. And everyone evacuated. Everyone except for a man named Harry Raynell Truman. Harry Truman was an elderly man who lived in his beloved little cottage at the foot of Mount St. Helens. Authorities warned him again and again. In fact, it became national news leading up to what would be the full-blown eruption of the volcano in May. I remember watching stories of this, you know, everybody said this crazy old man uh, refusing to leave his home at the base of this mountain. Well, on May 17th, 1980, the authorities drove out and made one final attempt to persuade him to leave, but to no avail. And the next morning, on May 18th, that volcano erupted, and Truman was buried under 150 feet of debris and never seen again. He heard the warnings. He was given multiple opportunities to be saved, but he refused. And now history, sadly, you can look him up online, Harry Raynell Truman, history will forever remember that gentleman as the man who refused to be saved. He's now become famous for something no one would ever want to become famous for. But as bad as that event was, 2,600 years ago, the prophet Jeremiah was sent by God to warn the people of Judah that they were living in sin, and if they didn't turn from their sin, judgment was going to fall. <clears throat> We've already seen a little bit of this, how Jeremiah pleaded and pleaded with these people again and again, month after month, year after year, to return to the Lord, to repent of their sin, 
before this terrible day of judgment came. So far, we've seen in Jeremiah chapter 1, we saw how God called Jeremiah. In chapter 2, we took a couple of weeks on that. We saw how God's people said had forsaken him, the fountain of living water. And they had gone after other gods. They had pursued other things in life to try to replace their connection with God, the source of all life. And they had come up empty every time. And so they continued pursuing more and more these other things in life besides God. Last week, we did kind of a survey of multiple chapters because this is a theme that runs throughout the book of Jeremiah, and that is how false prophets had arisen in the land. And they were going around as Jeremiah was preaching, judgment is coming, repent of your sin. These false prophets said, well, you know, people don't really like that message, so they're probably not going to give money to our ministry. So let's go around and tell them, hey, everything's fine. Don't listen to this quack. Everything's fine. Judgment's not coming, and they, it says they, they preached a message, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And they lulled the people of God into a false sense of security. They became comfortable, they became lazy, they became confident, and they did not heed the repeated warnings of God to turn from their sin. Today, I want to try to do a very quick uh, survey of chapters 3 through 8 as we continue making our way through the Bible and through this book now in particular. And we're going to see how God tries yet again, multiple times, to rescue his people from this damnation that is coming before it's too late. Now, these chapters are uh, they're packed with so, so many details, so many historical details, but also so rich in truth and in, in principles that apply uh, shockingly directly to our lives today in 2023. And so <clears throat> what I've done in an attempt to not keep us here for three hours with all of this is just continually over the last month or so to go through this again and again and just kind of whittle off as much as I can um, to allow me to address these chapters with you in our regular amount of time this morning. And one of the themes, as I've said, Jeremiah is a book of themes, multiple themes that we see running throughout the book, and they're all important for us to try to pay attention to. But one of the themes uh, that we see here is God <clears throat> is saying to his people, you are treating me like an unfaithful bride. God says, I am the groom. You are my bride, the people that I have set my affections upon. He said, I loved you not because you were the greatest. In fact, you were the, you were the least of all. I've loved you not because of anything special in you, but because I set my love on you. And by the way, that's why God loves you. Because he loves you. You've done nothing and can do nothing to catch his attention and to earn his love. He loves you because he loves his creation. And he wants more than anything else to be your God, for you to be his people and to have fellowship with you. And so God comes now through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says to his people, again, this is a theme we see running all through these chapters. He says to them, um, 
things like this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, the second part of that verse. Again, I'm just, for now, I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights, and then we'll come back and try to put this together. Last part of verse 1, God says to his people, you have played the harlot, and that in itself would be a bad enough statement. But it gets worse. You've played the harlot with many lovers. In fact, their unfaithfulness had been so severe that God says this in verse 2, lift up your eyes to the barren heights and see, where have you not been ravished? Or where have you, literally, where have you not lain with other men? God's saying, show me a place you haven't been unfaithful to me. He goes on, you have sat by the waysides, awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. I mean, this is a tough language, tough language for a nice Sunday morning. But God is saying, you didn't even wait for these people to come to you. You went out seeking them like an Arab in the wilderness. It was a it's too much to get into, but people would lie and wait on the, on the roadsides at night, and they would pounce out and rob people who came by. God says, that's exactly what you've been doing. He continues in verse 6. She has gone up on every high mountain, she referring to his, his nation. She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. We remember from our studies the Pagan altars were most usually built on high places, up on high mountains, and often under trees. There's great significance to that going all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis with Abraham, and we see how trees play into their mindset in pagan worship. Verse 13, God says, You have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Now, we don't have time to, to, to go on reading all of these, but the charges continue even into upcoming chapters. Chapter 4, verse 17, God says, She has been rebellious against me. Chapter 4, verse 22, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. It goes on and on and on, but you get the point. And as the people were busy in their sin, busy rejecting God, busy rejecting the message coming through the prophet Jeremiah, these other false prophets continued to say, hey, God's not going to judge you. God's all about love. He wants to bless you. Yes, he does. Don't worry, nothing's going to happen. This Jeremiah is a nut. Don't believe him. God loves you. He's not going to judge you. But Jeremiah kept on speaking the truth, saying God's judgment is on the way. It's not a popular message. It wasn't then. It's not today. It's not a popular message. I would much rather get up here and talk about, you know, I don't know, puppy dogs and cotton candy and fields of daisies and rainbows and whatever. Well, rainbows, that's they, they've stolen the rainbow. It's a bit of a touchy subject. But look, I don't, I don't look forward to getting up here and bringing messages on judgment. And it seems like in our study so far through the Old Testament, especially as we've been in the prophets, I mean, it's like, Phil, really, another message about sin and judgment? Yes, folks, another message about sin and judgment. You know why? Because we need to hear it. That's why. 
we need to hear it. If things are repeated in the Bible, let's not skip over them. Let's not say, ah, heard that 20 times. Maybe God is just striking that hammer again, trying to break through to our heart. And so Jeremiah is faithfully going around proclaiming this message of judgment. And boy, does he pay a price for it. We'll see that in upcoming weeks. Uh, Why? Why is judgment coming? It's because we've said so many times in here, and I hope we'll never forget this. God could not possibly be a just, righteous, holy God if he winked at sin and said, ah, it's no big deal. No more than you would want to sit into a court, in, a, in a courtroom looking at a criminal who had just murdered one of your children and hear the judge say, hey, no big deal, go back out on the street, no problem. You see, we want justice then, don't we? Because we know in our bones, we know it's right. And yet God's justice, when it's aimed at us, we go, oh, what kind of God is this? That's not fair. We must be careful with this. But the thing we see over and over again also in Scripture is God doesn't want to bring judgment. He never did. This was never his desire. And so he patiently warns his people again and again, and I'm talking in some cases for generations. It's not like he comes down and says, hey, Tuesday at 3 o'clock, you're done. Get your act together. I'm talking multiple generations, God sends people to them over and over, and they preach and say, please straighten up, please come back to God, judgment's coming. And generation after generation just kind of lives like we do in America. Ah, Everything seems fine now. Let's look at some examples of this. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say... Blow the trumpet in the land and cry, gather together, say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Verse 6, set up the standard towards Zion, take refuge, do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Now, this is ancient warfare language. Um, here's another example, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. God says, oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth Hakarim, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. God is saying judgment is on the way. You'd better You better blow the trumpet. In other words, you better hit the air raid siren. You better sound the alarm. Get ready for battle, and you better, he says, send your signal fires. This was a way that nearby cities would communicate to one another. They would have a high point in the city that they would climb up to, and they would light fires on top of this tower, and it was an ancient way to signal other cities of danger coming. And then he says specifically, we can't get into this today, we'll see it much more in the weeks to come, but you notice he said specifically, disaster is coming from the north. Tuck that away. That will become important in weeks to come. As we'll see, this was a reference to the nation of Babylon up north. Um, Assyria had been their greatest enemy so far, but Assyria is is, uh, about to be obliterated, 
And Babylon is now the new power on the rise. And we'll see, strangely enough, and some people have real problems with this in their theology, but interestingly enough, you know, God says, I set up nations and bring nations down. God will tell us in this book, I am raising up Babylon to come and bring judgment on my people. So God is building up a pagan nation a bloodthirsty, cruel nation. Why? To go and judge the people he loves. You can scratch your head over that all day long. I'm telling you, you're not going to figure God out. His ways are way above our ways, and we better just say, yes, sir, I accept it. I don't understand it. Might not even like it. But I know that you know best. So he's referring to Babylon there. Again, why, why is all this happening? Why is judgment going to come? Well, God makes it very clear in these chapters that the only reason judgment is coming upon the people is because they have rebelled against him. God's not sitting around cooking up ideas of things to do to his people. <coughs> this judgment is a direct consequence of the people's sin. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. We need to remember that more. When we're getting ready to go and do something that's going to break the heart of God, and we think, ah, it's no big deal. Ultimately, sin will bring forth death. And something far worse than physical death, by the way. Eternal death. Separation from God. Here are some examples of this now, as we sort of scan through and pick up... um, the reasons for this. God is very clear. He's not leaving this to guesswork. Chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. She, that is the nation, again, his people, she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart. Now, I've highlighted some of these statements in red, as I do in my Bible. Um, Anytime I encounter people sinning, people rebelling, people turning away from God, I mark it in red, and it stands out. I mark the blessings of God in blue, and so on. Um, And as you go through your Bible, things will just begin to pop off the page, and you'll see them very clearly. So I did that this morning just to try to help some of these things stand out for you and for you to get the sort of the emotion of what God is saying here. Chapter 5, verse 6, their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. Chapter 5, verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. Oh boy, he's getting into the church now. He's meddling in the business. And my people love to have it so. I want to read that again. The prophets prophesy falsely. That should be a problem for God's people. And the priests rule by their own power. Whoa, that's, that's all kinds of problems right there. Comma, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? I almost brought an entire sermon on that one statement right there. What will you do in the end? God doesn't leave them to wonder. He doesn't leave them to guess why this is going to happen. He makes it very clear. 
Now, so far, you know, the, the understandable part of all this to me is God is angry. He's heartbroken over his people's sin. And judgment for that sin is eminent. That's completely understandable. Here, here's the part I don't understand. And here's the part I find unbelievable is that God still loves them. And he wants them back. Imagine that. This reminds me so much of our study in Hosea a while back. God said, I want you to take a a woman as a wife who's going to be unfaithful to you, not once, multiple times. And she's going to have lovers in front of you. She's going to sort of flaunt it in your face. And I want you to love her. Do you understand why I stand up here sometimes and I say, it is impossible for you and me to love others with God's love if we are not connected to him? If the Holy Spirit is not in us, I can't love another human being the way God loves me. I can't do it. Because when I say I love you to someone in my flesh, there's always a little list of fine print that goes along with that. I love you, but... Whoa, man, that thing you did to me last week, it's making me not love you so much right now. Or I will love you when, or I will love you if. Our love is so messed up, man. What we call love, it's horrible in God's sight. The understandable part of this is people have sinned, God is heartbroken, and judgment is coming. The amazing part of this is God still loves them. And he wants them to come back and be his people. Even after all the horrible things they've done to betray him, there's still something else we see God saying throughout these chapters. We see God actually inviting these people to return to him. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, you don't remember, but just (laughs) just say you do, 48 times just in the book of Jeremiah, the word return is used. It's like a drumbeat over and over again. Return, 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 return to me. Even amid all the times when God says, you've been unfaithful to me, and so because of that, judgment is coming. Even in that, we see the threads of God's mercy woven in. God says again and again, I love you. Come back to me. Some quick examples again. Back to chapter 3, verse 1. You have played the harlot with many lovers. We read that part, but here's what we didn't read. Yet, return to me, says the Lord. Wow. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. We read that. Here's what we didn't read. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. Chapter 3, verse 12. Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Chapter 3, verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Verse 22. 
Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Chapter 4, verse 1, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. On and on and on it goes. God's saying judgment is coming, but the door is open. Today is your opportunity to turn around, to come back, to avoid the calamity that is coming. Come and make things right with me. And the people are like, eh, whatever. So as I said, the, the unbelievable part of this is that God still loves them and he wants them to come back to him, but there's something even more unbelievable than that. The people refuse God's invitation. They refuse to be saved from coming destruction. Now, before, before we're too quick to sit here in our comfortable chairs and you know, look down our nose at these people and go, what a bunch of morons. Who would ever do that? I mean, God is making it clear, you've sinned, judgment is coming, this is going to be horrific. But look, the door is open. I'm giving you an opportunity to come back to me to make things right. And we look at them and go, why wouldn't they do that? Hmm. Do you have anything in your life right now that God has been knocking on the door of your heart about, saying, we need to take care of that. That's not of me. We need to clean that up. We need to continue this process of sanctification in your life. You are in sin. I'm giving you an opportunity to repent, to make this right. And we go, eh, whatever. Some quick examples of this. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 7. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. We read that part, but here's what we didn't read. But she did not return. Verse 21. They have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Chapter 5, verse 3, they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Chapter 6, verse 16, we saw this verse last week. It sort of takes on a new light now. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah six nineteen. They have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. One more. There's so many of these. I, I honestly, I, there are so many things left on the cutting room floor this morning. But for time's sake, here's, here's one more. Chapter 7, verse 23. This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. There's the heartbeat of God right there. And walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. What an incredible promise. Verse 24, yet, oh boy, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Uh, by the way, we'll get into this on another day, but let me just drop this in here, especially for you students. 
As you move through life and you're making decisions, you'll hear people say to you with the best of intent, I believe, just follow your heart. Um, Can I maybe be the first to warn you? That's the worst advice you can get. It's among the worst advice you can get. Don't follow your heart. We'll see later in, in Jeremiah, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You telling me... Any one of you have gone for this entire past week without having heart trouble. You know what I mean? Heart trouble. Now, our friend Connie is here. She's had all kinds of heart trouble uh, recently. It's, it's good to have Connie back with us today. But I, you know, I've had some heart trouble too, but I'm talking about the other heart, the spiritual heart. Man, that thing will deceive you. It will lie to you. Your heart will say, hey, man. That's a pretty good choice, I think. Let's do that. Yeah, God says, and these are his people he's talking about, by the way. These are not pagans, although they're acting like it. But these are his people called by his name. God says, you're following the counsels and dictates of your evil heart. So over and over again, God's invitation to be saved was extended to the nation. God was patient. He was, as the Bible says, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But just like Harry Raynell Truman, God's people refused to be saved. They refused to heed his warning. And now, now we come to the part of Scripture that breaks my heart. It absolutely kills me to have to talk about this. But the people have refused, they've refused, and they've refused. And now, folks, time runs out. The door of opportunity has closed once and for all. And there's no coming back. This culminates in one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible and one of the most terrifying sentences in the history of mankind. And I put it on this slide so that maybe it would sink into us a little more. Jeremiah 8.20 The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Well, I'll just say these specific words don't mean that much to us in terms of the harvest and the summer. But Jeremiah knew exactly what he was talking about. Just very quickly, in that part of the world, in Jeremiah's time, there were there was not just one harvest. There was a first harvest that happened in spring, in usually late April into May. And this was the grain harvest, the barley and the wheat. That was the first harvest. But then this verse mentions summer. And toward the end of the summer, they had a second harvest. This was the harvest of grapes and mostly fruit. And when harvest is mentioned in the Bible, listen to this. It always refers to a window of opportunity 
that God is giving to people to come to him. Harvest means a window of opportunity. Just as there is a specific season for harvest, there is a season of opportunity. There's a window of time when, when crops could be harvested. But if a farmer you know, sat idly by during harvest time and didn't gather his crops, he'd be empty-handed when the harvest was over. The crops would rot and they would fall to the ground and the harvest would be wasted, the opportunity would be missed. And this is precisely why Jesus said in John 4, 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are white already for harvest. And Jesus was speaking here of a, that limited time of opportunity when men could be saved, after which time it would be forever too late. What God is saying to the people through Jeremiah is, I've given you so many opportunities to repent and return to me, but you've let them all pass by, and now your season of opportunity has passed. It's gone. God says, even the animals have more sense than you do. Look at this, Jeremiah chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Even those who are supposed to be trusted with preserving God's word, they're twisting it now. They're writing things that aren't true. Verse 9, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? That's quite a statement. Did you know there's no true wisdom without God? He's the source of all wisdom. There's learning, there's knowledge, there's education, there's brilliance, there's intellect. There's no true wisdom without God. At this point, Jeremiah is, we can tell he's a true shepherd. You know, if I can say this in the right way, I mean this sort of in a silly way, but you know, God chose the right man for this job because Jeremiah isn't just up there railing against the people, telling them, you wicked, evil sinners, you're going to burn in hell. His heart is torn in two over what is happening. He's grieving that the people have refused God's invitation. And we, we get a glimpse of that in the next verse, 821. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning astonishment has taken hold of me. He says, I can't believe what these people are doing. It's killing me to see them rejecting God like this. That's a true shepherd. That's a true pastor. He knows that help and salvation are literally just a prayer away. And as we start to wind this down now, the next verse, I want you to see this beautiful next verse. It's something odd to us. It doesn't mean anything to us right off the bat, but hopefully it will in just a moment. Jeremiah 8, 22. 
Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? It's a rhetorical question. Everybody who lived in that area knew the answer was yes. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Here's a quick explanation of what's going on. Gilead was a region just east of the Jordan River. It was famous for a plant from which they made uh, lotions and balms used for medicinal purposes. Now, put that photo up there real quick. There's a photo of Gilead today. It's a real place. The Bible was right again. And up in the corner, there's the plant that I will never be able to pronounce the name of from which they made this famous balm in Gilead. Now, this balm back then was highly sought after by people in countries as far away as Egypt. And I just picked one little example of this from Scripture. This balm in Gilead... was so well known that people had been pursuing this and buying this from afar uh, as, as far back as 1,500 years prior to Jeremiah. Do you remember when Joseph's brothers, all the way back in Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers grabbed him and threw him into the pit? By the way, that word pit in Genesis 37 is the same word in Jeremiah 2 we looked at a few weeks ago for cistern. Genesis even says... His brothers threw him into the pit, into the cistern, and it was dry. There was no water in it. Again, crack cisterns. They leak water. Probably just a coincidence. The Bible probably just lucked out on that one, don't you think? Yeah. So they grabbed him. They threw him in this cistern, in this deep underground uh, reservoir. And then it says this, Genesis 37, 25. I'm just trying to help tie the scriptures together for us. And they, Joseph's brothers, sat down to eat a meal. Nice guys, these guys. They just threw their brother into a pit, planning to kill him. Hey, somebody go grab some uh, McDonald's. Let's have a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from where? Coming from Gilead with what? With camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Hmm. 1,500 years before Jeremiah writes this about the balm in Gilead, people in Egypt were mail-ordering balm from Gilead. And it came on like a three-month camel delivery system. (laughs) Not only had this balm in Gilead been around forever back then, but listen, it's still being sold today. Here's an Amazon screenshot. You can go online right now, and you can buy balm of Gilead. Okay, so that's a little history of what Jeremiah is saying here. Let me try to tie all this in together now. I want you to see why Jeremiah made this reference to people who are lost in sin, who are rejecting God, who are refusing the cleansing, the saving that he is offering to them. Let's read this verse again, Jeremiah 8.22. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? People are going, yes, of course there is. We know that. He says, why then? Is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah is distressed. He's shocked because he knows that just as there is a balm in Gilead that can heal the physical ailments of people, God was offering them a bomb that could heal them spiritually. 
God had made it clear that if they would return to him, he would heal their backsliding. He would wash them of their sin. So Jeremiah is saying, just as it would be foolish for someone suffering from a terrible physical ailment not to go and get the healing balm of Gilead that could make them better, it's infinitely more foolish for someone lost in sin, about to be judged for their sin, not to go to God to receive the spiritual healing that would save them. Because the ultimate outcome of rejecting God's invitation is tragic. It's tragic. Near the very end of the book, Jeremiah 46, 11 says this, In vain you have used many medicines, but there is no healing for you. Boy, does that picture the pursuits of mankind. In vain you have used many medicines, but there is no healing for you. God wanted to heal them of their sin, but they rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And finally, the day came when God's offer to heal was withdrawn forever. It was off the table. I wind it all down with this. Because what a shame it would be for us to examine all these verses today and feel the heart of God and his love for us and then close the book and sing a couple songs and walk away. Because tragically, this is still a problem today. There are so many people in our world, maybe some in this room, who hear the gospel again and again and again. God gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, but they continue to turn away. It reminds me of a man in the book of Acts, a very important man, a governor named Felix. And the apostle Paul went to him one day and shared the gospel with him. Felix fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he was teetering on the edge of what to do. And here's what he said to Paul in Acts 24, 25. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And you know what you will not find in the Bible? There's no record of Felix ever making that call. Maybe God has been calling you. But you keep turning a deaf ear. I want you to know, and I say this in love, a time is coming when the harvest will be over and your opportunity will be gone forever. Are you still putting it off? Like Felix, are you saying, not today? No, I'll wait for some more convenient time. Hey, can I urge you, don't be like the people in Noah's day. Noah, as he was building the ark, was preaching the gospel to people. He was hammering away, building the ark, and preaching to people, judgment is coming, be saved. And they all laughed at him. They said, what a kook this guy is. Judgment's not coming. He's lost his mind. And they all laughed. They all made fun of him until the day the flood came. 
And the Bible says Noah and his family went into the ark and God shut the door. God shut the door. And those rains began to fall. And those floodwaters began to rise and began to rage. Can you imagine all those people in those floodwaters trying to swim, trying to get as close to the ark as they could, bobbing in the water outside the ark, pounding on the outside of the ark with their fists. Noah, we're sorry. We believe you now. But it was too late. Their time had passed. Their opportunity was gone forever. Don't be like them. Don't be like Harry Raynell Truman, who ignored repeated warnings and missed his final opportunity to be saved. Folks, if God is speaking to you today, I plead with you to respond. Listen, here's the thing. Today, right now, you've been given one more opportunity. Of that, I am sure. Right now, God has given you one more opportunity. Are you sure you'll ever get another one? Are you really that sure? I close with this verse, Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Don't let it be said of you, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and you are not saved. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing a couple of songs. And as I've mentioned before, this is not a time to gather up car keys and cell phones and, and all of that. This is a time to respond. This is your time. This is your harvest moment. If God is speaking to you about anything, I urge you to do business with him in these moments right now. If that means simply staying at your seat or kneeling at your seat or coming up to the cross and kneeling or coming to the back to find me or one of our ladies, you do whatever you need to do to put this right with God. Do you hear me? Today you have one more opportunity. You may never get another one. Respond while there is still time. Father, I pray that you would seal this word to our hearts. Do the work that you need to do now for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the
Of my heart. 